Unsettled Questions of Political Economy by John Stuart Mill. Essay number one. Of the Laws of Interchange Between Nations and the Distribution of the Gain of Commerce Among the Countries of the Commercial World. Part three. Let us revert to our earliest and simplest example, but which displays the real law of interchange more luminously than any formula into which money enters, the case of simple barter. We showed that, if at the rate of ten yards of cloth for seventeen of linen, the demand of Germany amounted to one thousand times ten yards of cloth, the two nations will trade together at that rate of interchange, provided that the linen required in England be exactly one thousand times seventeen yards, neither more nor less, for the cloth and the linen will then exactly pay for one another, and nobody on either side will be obliged to offer what he has to sell at a lower rate in order to procure what he wants to buy. Now if the increase of wealth and population in Germany should greatly increase the demand in that country for cloth, the demand for linen in England not increasing at the same ratio, if, for instance, Germany became willing, at the above rate, to take 1,500 times 10 yards, is it not evident that to induce England to make in exchange for this the only article which Germany by supposition has to give, the latter must offer it at a rate more advantageous to England, at 18 or perhaps 19 yards for 10 of cloth? so that the division of the advantage becomes more and more favorable to a country in proportion as the demand for its commodities increase in foreign countries. It is not even necessary that the country which takes its goods should supply it with any commodity whatever. Suppose that a country should be opened to our merchants, disposed to buy from us in abundance, but which it can sell to us scarcely anything, as every commodity which it affords could be got cheaper by us from some other quarter. Nevertheless, our trade with this country will enable us to obtain from all other countries their commodities at a lower price. At the first opening of this commerce of mere exportation, we must have received in payment a large quantity of money, for which our customer will have been indemnified by other countries in exchange for her commodities. Prices must consequently be lower in all the other countries and higher with us than before the opening of the new branch of trade, and we therefore obtain the commodities of other countries at a less cost, both as we pay less money for them and as money is lower in value. Another obvious application of the same principle will enable us to explain and to bring within the domain of strict science the rivalry of one exporting nation and another or what is called in the language of the mercantile system, underselling, a subject which political economists have taken little trouble to elucidate. From the habit before alluded to of disregarding almost entirely, in their purely scientific inquiries, those circumstances which affect the trade of a country by operating immediately upon the exports. Let us revert to our old example and to our old figures, Suppose that the trade between England and Germany in cloth and linen is established, and that the rate of interchange is 10 yards of cloth for 17 of linen. Now suppose that there arises in another country, in Flanders for example, a linen manufacturer, and that the same causes 
the working of which in England and Germany has made ten yards exchange for seventeen, would in England and Flanders, putting Germany out of the question, have made the rate of interchange ten for eighteen. It is evident that Germany must also give eighteen yards of linen for ten of cloth, and so carry on the trade with a diminished share of the advantage, or lose it altogether. If the play of demand in England and Flanders had made the rate of interchange not ten for eighteen, but ten for twenty-one, ten to twenty being in Germany the comparative cost of production, it is evident that Germany could not have maintained the competition, and would have lost not part of her share of the advantage, but all advantage and the trade itself. It would be no question to say that Germany could probably still have found the means of importing cloth from England by exporting something else. If she had purchased cloth with anything else, she would have purchased it dearer, as is provided by the fact that having free choice, she found it most advantageous to purchase it with linen. When she could get ten yards of cloth for seventeen of linen, that was the mode in which she could get it with least labor. Being pressed by competition, she gave successively seventeen, eighteen, eighteen, but rather than give nineteen yards of linen, she perhaps would prefer to give, as costing her rather less labor, ten yards of silk, which we will suppose to be the quantity which in England would produce ten yards of cloth. It is obvious that though Germany has found a means of supplying herself with cloth by exporting a different article from that which she was undersold, yet the advantage of the trade between her and England is now shared in a proportion much less favorable to Germany. There is no difficulty in showing that the same series of consequences takes place in exactly the same manner through the agency of money. The trade in cloth and linen between England and Germany being supposed to exist as before, Flanders produces linen at a lower price than that at which Germany has hitherto afforded it. The exportation from Germany is suspended, and Germany, continuing to import cloth, pays for it in money. But so doing, she lowers her own prices, and raises those in England. She has to pay more money for cloth, and to pay it in a currency of higher value. She thus suffers more and more as a consumer of cloth, until the fall of her prices she can either afford to sell linen as cheap as Flanders, or to export some other commodity which she could not export before. In either case, her trade resumes its course, but with diminished advantage to her side. Begin footnote. The world at large, sellers and buyers taken together, is always a gainer by underselling. If, in the case supposed, England were compelled by a commercial treaty to exclude the linen of Flanders from her market, the total wealth of the world, if affected at all, would be diminished. For what is the cause which enables Flanders to undersell Germany? But Flanders, if she had the trade, would exchange linen for cloth at a rate of interchange more advantageous to England. And why can Flanders do so? It must be either because Flanders can produce the article with a less comparative quantity of labor than Germany, and therefore the total advantage to be divided between the two countries is greater in the case of Flanders than of Germany, or else because, though the total advantage is not greater, Flanders obtains a less share of it, her demand for cloth being greater, at the same rate of interchange, than that of Germany. In the former case, to exclude Flanders linen from Germany would be to prevent the world at large from making a greater savings of labor instead of a less. 
In the latter, the exclusion would be inefficacious for the only end it could be intended for, viz. the benefit of Germany, unless Flemish money were excluded from England, as well as Flemish linen. For Flanders would buy English cloth, paying for it in money, until the fall of her prices enabled her to pay for it with something else. And the ultimate result would be that, by the rise of prices in England, Germany must pay a higher price for her cloth, and so lose a part of the advantage in spite of the treaty, while England would pay for German linen with the same price indeed. But as the money incomes of her own people would be increased, the same money price would imply a smaller sacrifice. End footnote. It is the mode just described that those countries which formerly supplied Europe with manufactures, but which owed their power of doing so not to any natural and permanent advantage, but to their more advanced state of civilization as compared with other countries, have lost their preeminence, as other countries successively attained an equal degree of civilization. Lombardy and Flanders, in the Middle Ages, produced some descriptions of clothing and ornament for all Europe. Holland, at a much later period, supplied ships, and almost all articles which came in ships, to most other parts of the world. All these countries have probably at this moment a much larger amount of capital than ever they had, but having been undersold by other countries, they have lost by far the greater part of the share which they had engrossed to themselves for the benefit which the world derives from commerce, and their capital yields to them, in consequence, a smaller proportional return. We are aware that other causes have contributed to the same effect, but we cannot doubt that this is a principal cause. As much as it is really true of the great returns alleged to have been made to capital during the last war, we must have arisen from a similar cause. Our exclusive command of the sea excluded from the market all by whom we should have been undersold. The adoption by France, Russia, the Netherlands, and the United States of a more severely restrictive commercial policy subsequently to 1815 has done great injury undoubtedly to those countries, for the duties which they have established are intended to be, and really are, of the class termed protecting. That is to say, such as force the production of commodities by more costly processes at home, instead of suffering them to be imported from abroad. But these duties, though chiefly injurious to the countries imposing them, have also been highly injurious to England. By diminishing her exportation or preventing it from increasing, as it would otherwise have done, they have kept up the prices of all imported commodities in England above what those prices would have fallen to if trade had been left free. By another obvious application of the same reasoning, it will be seen that there is a real foundation for the notion that a country may be benefited by receiving from another country the concession of what used to be termed commercial advantage, or by restraining its colonies from purchasing goods of any country except itself. It is evident that if England had been bound up by a treaty with Germany to buy linen exclusively from her, Germany would have retained the trade which we suppose her to lose, and would have continued to purchase cloth at a comparatively cheap rate from England, instead of producing it by a more costly process at home. Suppose that England had been a colony of Germany, and we see that by compelling colonies to deal at her shop, she may obtain a real advantage 
though of a nature which we may hazard the assertion that the founders of our current policy little dreamt of. Such an advantage, however, being gained at the expense of another country, is at least simply equivalent to a tax or tribute. Now, if a country has just grounds, or deems superiority of power a sufficient ground for extracting a tribute from another country, the most direct mode is the best. First, it is the most intelligible, and has least of trick or disguise. Secondly, because it allows the people of the country paying the tribute to raise the money in whatever way they consider least oppressive to themselves. Thirdly, because the indirect mode of taxing a country by restrictions on its commerce disturbs the distribution of industry most advantageous to the world at large, and occasions a greater loss to the restricted country and to the other countries with which that country would have traded, that gain to the country in whose favor the restrictions are imposed. And lastly, because a country never could obtain such privileges from an independent nation, and has seldom been so undisguised as oppressor as to demand them even from its colonies, without subjecting itself to restrictions in some degree equivalent for the benefit of those it has thus taxed. Each country, therefore, usually pays tribute to the other, and to produce its fruitless reciprocity of extraction, the industry and trade of both countries are diverted from the most advantageous channels, and the result to the labor and capital of both is diminished in pure loss. The same principles which have led to the above conclusions also suggest a remark of some importance with respect to the probable effect of a change from a restricted to a comparatively free trade. There is no doubt that our prohibiting the importation of a certain article, which, but for the prohibition, would have been imported, enables us to obtain our other imports at smaller cost. The article for which we have the greatest demand, and for which our demand is most increased by cheapness, is that which we should naturally import preferably to any other. Now this article we should import the quantity necessary to pay for our exports, on terms of interchange less advantageous to us than in the case of any other commodity. If our legislature prohibits this commodity, the other country will be obliged to offer any other article on easier terms in order to force a sufficient demand for it to be an equivalent to what she purchases from us. The steps of this process, money being used, would be these. We prohibit the importation of linen. The exportation of cloth continues but is paid for in money. Our prices rise. Those in Germany fall until silk or some other article can be imported from Germany cheaper than it can be produced at home, and in sufficient abundance to balance the export of cloth. Thus, by sacrificing the cheapness of one commodity, we gain the cheapness of another, but we sacrifice a greater cheapness to gain a less, and we sacrifice cheapness in the article which we most want and would import by preference, while our compensation is cheapness in an article which we either could produce more advantageously at home, or which we have so little desire for that it requires a species of bounty on the article to create a demand. Restrictions on importation do, however, tend to keep down the value and price of our remaining imports, and to keep up the nominal or money prices of all our other commodities by retaining a greater quantity of money in the country that would otherwise be there. From this it obviously follows that if the restrictions were removed, we should have to pay rather more for some of the articles which we now import 
while those which we are now prevented from importing would cost us more than might be inferred from their present price in the foreign market, and general prices would fall to the benefit of those who have fixed sums to receive, to the disadvantage of those who have fixed sums to pay, and giving rise, as a general fall of prices always does, to an appearance, though a temporary and fallacious one, of general distress. It is right to observe that the measures of the British legislature, which have been falsely characterized as measures of free trade, must from their extremely insignificant extent have produced far too little effect in increasing our importation to have actually led in any degree worth mentioning to the results specified above. It is of great importance to take notice that these effects may be entirely obviated if foreign countries can be prevailed upon simultaneously to relax their restrictive systems so as to create an immediate increase of demand for our exports at the present prices. It is true that exports and imports must, in the end, balance one another, and if we increase our imports, our exports will of necessity increase too, but it is a forced increase, produced by an efflux of money and fall of prices, and this fall of prices being permanent. Although it would be no evil at all in a country where credit is unknown, it may be very serious to one where large classes of persons in the nation itself are under engagements to pay fixed sums of money of large amount. The only remaining application of the principle set forth in this essay, which we think it of importance to notice specially, is the effect produced upon a country by the annual payment of a tribute or subsidy to a foreign power, or by the annual remittance of rents to absentee landlords, or of any other kind of income to its absent owners. Remittances to absentees are often very incorrectly likened in their general character to the payments of a tribute, from which they differ in this very material circumstance, that tribute, if not paid to a foreign country, is not paid at all, whereas rents are paid to the landlord and consumed by him, even if he resides at home. The two kinds of payment, however, have a perfect resemblance to each other in such parts of their effect as we are about to point out. The tribute subsidy or remittance is always in goods, for unless the country possesses mines of the precious metals and numbers those metals among its regular articles of export, it cannot go on year after year parting with them and never receiving them back. When a nation has regular payments to make in a foreign country, for which it is not to receive any return, its exports must annually exceed its imports by the amount of payment which it is bound to make. In order to force a demand for its exports greater than its imports will suffice to pay for, it must offer them at a rate of interchange more favorable to the foreign country, and less so to itself, than if it had no payments to make beyond the value of its imports. It therefore carries on the trade with less advantage in consequence of the obligations to which it is subject towards persons resident in foreign countries. The steps of the process are these, the exports and imports being in equilibrium. Suppose a treaty is to be concluded by which the country binds itself to pay a tribute to another country, a certain sum annually. It makes perhaps the first payment by a remittance of money. This lowers prices in the paying country and raises them in the receiving one. The exports of the tributary country increase, its imports diminish. 
When the efflux of money has altered prices in the requisite degree, the exports exceed the imports annually by the amount of the tribute, and the latter being added to the sum of the payments due, restores the balance of payments between the two countries. The result to the tributary country is a diminution of her share in the advantage of foreign trade. She pays dearer for her imports in two ways, because she pays more money, and because that money is of higher value, the money incomes of her inhabitants being of smaller amount. Thus the importation of a tribute is a double burden to the country paying it, and a double gain to that which receives it. The tributary country pays to the other, first the tax, whatever be its amount, and next something more, which the one country loses in the increased cost of its imports, the other gains in the diminished cost of its own. Absenteeism, moreover, though not burthensome in the former of these ways, since the money is paid whether the receiver be an absentee or not, is yet disadvantageous in the second of the two modes which have been mentioned. Ireland pays dearer for her imports in consequence of her absentees, a circumstance which the assailants of Mr. McCulloch, whether political economists or not, have not, we believe, hitherto thought of producing against him. If the question be now asked which of the countries of the world gains most by foreign commerce, the following will be the answer. If by gain be meant advantage, in the most enlarged sense, that country will generally gain the most, which stands most in need of foreign commodities. But if by gain be meant saving of labor and capital in obtaining the commodities which the country desires to have, whatever they may be, the country will gain not in proportion to its own need of foreign articles, but to the need of which foreigners have of the articles which itself produces. Let us take as an illustration of our meaning the case of France and England. Those two nations, in consequence of the restrictions with which they have loaded their commercial intercourse, carry on so little trade with each other as may almost regard being had to be the wealth and population of the two countries be called none at all. If these fetters were at once taken off, which of the two countries would be the greater gainer? England, without doubt. There would instantly arise in France an immense demand for the cottons, woolens, and iron of England, while wines, brandies, and silks, the staple articles of France, are less likely to come into general demand here. Nor would the consumption of such productions, it is probable, be so rapidly increased by the fall of price. The fall would probably be very great before France could obtain a vent in England for so much of her exports as would suffice to pay for the probable amount of her imports. There would be a considerable flow from the precious metals out of France into England. The English consumer of French wine would not merely save the amount of the duty which that wine now pays, but would find the wine itself falling in prime cost while his means of purchasing it would be increased by the augmentation of his own money income. The French consumer of English cottons, on the contrary, would not long continue to be able to purchase them at the price they now sell for in England. He would gain less, as the English would gain more, than might appear from a mere comparison between the present prices of commodities in the two countries. Various consequences would flow from the opening of trade between France and England, which are not expected, either by the friends or by the opponents of the present restrictive system. 
The wine growers of France, who imagined that free trade could relieve their distress by raising the price of their wine, might not improbably find that the price actually lowered. On the other hand, our silk manufacturers would be surprised if they were told that the free admission of our cottons and hardware into the French market would endanger their branch of manufacture, yet such might very possibly be the effect. France, it is likely, could most advantageously pay us in silks for a portion of the large amount of cottons and hardware which we should sell to her, and though our silk manufacturers may now be able to compete advantageously in some branches of the manufacture with the French rivals, it by no means follows that they could do so when the efflux of money from France and its influx into England had lowered the price of silk goods in the French market and increased the expenses of production here. On the whole, England probably, of all the countries of Europe, draws to herself the largest share of the gains of international commerce because her exportable articles are in universal demand and are of such a kind that the demand increases rapidly as the price falls. Countries which export food have the former advantage, but not the latter. But our own colonies and the countries which supply us with the materials of our manufacture maintain a hard struggle with us for an equal share of the advantages of their trade, for their exports are also of a kind for which there exists a most extensive demand here, and a demand capable of almost indefinite extension by a fall of price. Contrary, therefore, to common opinion, it is probable that our trade with the colonies and with the countries which send us the raw materials of our natural industry is not more but less advantageous to us. In